What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of FedWatch. My name is Ansel Lindner, and we have some very special guests. But before I announce who those are, just some admin notes up front. So I have started a FedWatch Clips channel. That's where I take out three clips of the best time during uh, each of these episodes and put them up on their own YouTube channel. So you can find that by searching FedWatch Clips on YouTube, or I will link it in a comment after the live stream down below. I also started a telegram channel for Bitcoin and markets. That's my original podcast that I'm still going with the community. Now I've expanded into a telegram channel and I do live streams there. I've started, I've challenged myself to do 30 live streams in 30 days, just about 15 minutes of consciousness of what I'm thinking about for that day. Sometimes they're in the morning, sometimes they're in the evening, but check out my telegram channel for more on that. Okay. Now, without further ado, the special, very special guests for today's show, Q and Chris. How are you guys doing? I can't How's do this it? with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> Q almost gave it away. No, happy to be here. Thanks, Ansel. All right. Uh, so thanks for joining. It's CK is jet setting, I guess, with for Bitcoin Magazine, doing the do. So you guys have been gracious to not only host the live stream, but, but to come on to uh, FedWatch and help out. So how are you guys doing? How was that first first uh, two hours? I'm still standing. You have not seen me take a seat <laughs> in my non-existent seat behind me. You know, I, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. I'm appreciative that you've asked us to join at you, Ansel, and excited to dive into what we're going to talk about. Q, Q sold his chairs preemptively. I respect him for it <laughs> to stack more sats, but I have not. I don't think the bottom's in yet. I think we're hiking interest rates and we can get into it in a little bit. <laughs> well, I haven't, I haven't replaced my crappy chair. So if you hear clicking, that's my chair clicking. It's, it's, it's an old one, but okay. Yeah. So we're just going to go over recession and I can talk a lot guys, as you know, so just cut break in anytime you have a question. If you think I missed something. Yeah. What's up Re really quickly. I want to just shout out to everyone who's watching right now. If you have questions on anything we talk about or just anything fed related macro related, Throw it yes. in these chats. We see all the comments with the exception of Rumble. We are moderating that as well. So if you have a question, throw it in and we will do our best to get to it and answer it. Yes, we are doing a and answer at the end or a Q&A, if you will. <laughs> so, all right. The big topic of the day is recession. Are we in a recession? Are we not in recession? The You don't have to go to the slides quite yet because I'm going to be ranting here at the at the front. So are, are we in a recession? Or are we not in a recession? I guess it looks like the administration has now redefined what recession is. They say it doesn't have to be two consecutive quarters of GDP, negative GDP growth, which for the 20 years that I've, you know, had an economics degree and I've been studying this stuff, it's always been two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. But now I guess it is not that. But again, FedWatch kind of anticipated this because three, four shows ago, we started, Christian and I started talking about, are we in a recession or depression? How do we define what those two things are? So FedWatch, once again, was ahead of the curve on this. Then Joe Carlosari came on and I was trying to push him down the road of saying we're in a depression, but uh, you know, he wouldn't go that far. And he said, yeah, he thinks a recession is coming and, and all of that. So again, FedWatch is ahead of the curve, but it would probably surprise you guys to know that they didn't just redefine this. It was actually redefined in 2020 back at the, the COVID recession. So the COVID recession, if you look at those FRED, Federal Reserve charts with the gray 
bars that show when recession is the 2020 recession is really tiny and it's only March and April. The reason why that is, is because they redefined it back then to be, to make that be a recession. I think they did it politically. So for the president in that election year, the president at the time would have a recession on his record. And now I think they're going the opposite way. So they narrowed it then. Now they're broadening it so that this recession doesn't count as a recession. And again, it's political for the person, the president who is in office. So it's, it's kind of interesting the way these things repeat themselves. But I believe that we are in a recession. We are in most likely a depression. And the, the reason I say that is because a, de a depression would be low growth, low inflation, or even de deflation for a long period of time. And within that period, you have multiple recessions. So I think that's what we're experiencing right now since the great financial crisis is a depression. And this is kind of a, maybe a second leg in this depression that we've been in for the last 13, 14 years. I think that it has dire consequences though, because if you, you can explain a lot of things by saying we're in a depression, right? You can say, you know, what about the mental health issues? Well, we've had 14 years of one to 2% growth. It's not like back in the eighties and nineties when you had five, eight, 10% growth rates, you've had one to 2%. So you have a lot of mental health issues. You have a poor demographics. You have failing family type structures and failing values because we're in this depressionary period. So I, I think I like that way of describing why we're experiencing a lot of these things out there. So one thing that I've noticed over the last 24 hours was Walmart came out with a financial update for, I don't think it's an earnings call or, you know, earnings. This is earnings season. So we should expect a lot of companies to come out with their earnings. Most of the big companies have not done that yet from what I've seen. And I'm not some expert. I'm not a guy, a guy that goes out there and watches these earnings and goes through all these pages and finds stuff. But I thought this was important because Walmart is the largest retailer in the world. They are double as big or they're double the second place retailer, which is Amazon and a global company. So they're a good proxy for at least the U.S. economy, but most likely they're a good proxy for the global economy. So what happens to Walmart kind of happens to the world. So if we're using them, I'm going to read through this statement that they had here in a second. But, you know, Walmart is a good proxy because the U.S. has 70% uh, of its GDP comes from consumption. And also, we're the marginal global consumer. So if something happens to the American consumer, it's most likely going to affect, you know, China and it's going to roll downhill and affect Germany because we buy everything from China. If they can somehow find out how to get over this COVID, the zero COVID policy and their financial crisis that we covered last week, uh, they're still going to be faced with their consumers aren't going to be wanting to buy their stuff or can't afford to buy their stuff. And then that rolls downhill. So they buy a lot of their heavy equipment from Germany and they buy commodities from all over the world. So heavy, you know, heavy machinery makers in Germany are going to have problems as well as commodity producers are going to have problems. So it just rolls downhill like that. So it all starts with the American consumer is what I'm trying to say. And Walmart is a good proxy for that. So let me uh, pull up this report. And the title is Walmart Inc. provides update for second quarter and fiscal year 2023. Company lowers profit outlook for Q2 and fiscal year 23. 
operating margin expected to be about 4.2% for Q2 and 3.8 to 3.9% for fiscal year 23. Now these are nominal figures. So if you include inflation in there and you say Q2, they have expected to, their operating margin is expected to be about 4.2%, you know, then you have to take off inflation. Okay, let's continue down here. Comp sales for Walmart US, excluding fuel, are expected to be about 6% for the second quarter. This is higher than previously expected with a heavier mix of food and, food and consumables, which is negatively affecting gross margin rate. Food inflation is double digits and higher than at the end of Q1. This is affecting consumers' ability to spend on general merchandise categories and requiring more markdowns to move through the inventory, particularly apparel. And we've talked about this on the show a lot. The COVID cycle, you know, the fiscal spending produced a inventory binge. And now we're at the end of an inventory cycle where they're going to have to start liquidating their inventory. And what does that look like? You know, they have to cut their price, right? And I mean, I just... I go have been on Amazon a couple of times in the last few days. And I just noticed that negative 10%, negative 20%, even some negative 40% markdowns on, on goods. So, you know, this is really hitting retailers and prices are falling, which is not, you know, going to keep the quote unquote inflation or CPI going up. All right. Continuing during the quarter, the company made progress, reducing inventory, managing prices to reflect certain supply chain costs and inflation and reducing storage costs associated with the backlog of shipping containers. Consumers are choosing Walmart to save money during this inflationary period. And this is reflected in the company's continued market share gains in grocery. So even though people are starting to go to Walmart because it's cheaper, there's, and Walmart's gaining market share, they're still you know, negative on the quarter. So instead of going to your expensive grocery store, you're going to go to Walmart. Instead of going to your expensive retail, Target is a more expensive retailer than Walmart. You're going to go to Walmart. So Walmart's gaining market share, but they're still losing money. Moving down here, we have something about exchange rates here. This is currency based. So net sales include a headwind from currency of about $1 billion in the second quarter based on current exchange rates. The company expects a $1.8 billion headwind in the second half of the year. So the second half of the year, $1.8 billion loss from a strong dollar. That's what this is saying. Strong dollar affects Walmart. It affects everybody in the world. It affects all, all consumers and producers everywhere in the world. And Walmart is no exception. Continuing down a little bit further. Operating income for the second quarter and full year is expected to to decline 13 to 14% and 11 to 13% respectively. So second quarter, as high as a 14% loss in income. And the full year, they're expecting up to a 13% loss in full income. So that's nominal too. If you put on top of that inflation or CPI, you know, they're looking at percent decline in income for Walmart. I think this is a great example of the state of the U.S. consumer, the state of the U.S. economy. All right. And, and I'll just add to that. Most retailers are down. So Walmart went down 9% overnight, their stock, and Target went down. 
uh, all, all sorts of other retailers. Amazon also went down 4%. What did I think Amazon went down 4%. Yep, and Amazon. between just Amazon and Walmart, you have $100 billion wiped out from the markets now. Just because of those two companies, Amazon trading in sympathy with Walmart. Amazon hasn't even reported earnings. They just know, oh shit, if this is affecting Walmart in this way. And Angela, you really, yeah. you said it so perfectly. Like this is, like we talk a lot about, oh, you know, we're dealing with bad inflation, but consumer spending habits aren't really changing. I heard this fucking narrative too much from very sound, smart people saying, oh, well, you know what? So long as big box retailers like Walmart and Target are coming in at least on par or even like just barely missing, we're fine. We'll be fine. But now we're not seeing a barely miss. We're seeing Walmart come out and point blank say, yo, we fucked. I don't know if you curse on FedWatch or not, so excuse my language there. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah, and it's interesting because they were essential businesses, remember? So like Walmart stayed open the whole time, I remember. At least by me, it did. And so they're having this increase in demand because everybody's going to Walmart instead of their local mom and pop retailer, their higher end retailer. So that, that demand gets shifted to Walmart. So what does Walmart do? Well, they order more inventory. So they, they plussed up their inventory probably by two times because they thought that they were going to be now the market share that they captured during the pandemic was going to continue like that. Well, it's not going to do that. Now they're just going to have to cut their prices. And we're on the, the you've, you've probably heard this recently. People have started talk, talking about the bull whip effect. So prices go up and then prices come down and smash you. Right. And we've been talking about that on the show for a long time that, and I got this from Steve Van Meter, who we have interviewed here on FedWatch as well, but Prices have gone up, but the consumer can't afford those higher prices. Like they can't afford to have the same standard of living that they had just paying 10% more. So what you, the, the consumers had to do was tighten their belt. And then you're going to affect demand for other products throughout the economy. Like an, another business that had some news over the last 24 hours was Bed Bath & Beyond. I don't know if you guys know that company, but they sell those like scented candles and lotions and uh, maybe towels for your bathroom, like fancy towels and stuff. That's pure disposable income, right? Or disposable spending. Well, they've been crushed because people are going away from those type of retailers to Walmart. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a bullwhip effect. It's going to come back down. And now what do you, what, what can we say about CPI? I think CPI, I thought, I've been wrong. I thought CPI was going to peak back, you know, May, June time. And it hasn't done that yet, but maybe this was the peak and we're going to see this bullwhip effect with inventories and, you know, see some prices coming down. I, I want to, you know, I'm seeing a little bit of a conversation in the chats as well. Can we maybe break down why, a strong dollar is actually bad for U.S. companies and good for foreign companies. Can we break that down for a sec for everyone? Well, no, it's not. It's not good for anybody. It's well, not good I, for anybody. I would argue that for a foreign company that does business in America, it is very good for them. If you get paid in dollars and then you take it back to your your country, yeah, I can the, see that. There was some. There was some. Not to cut you off. Sorry. Yeah. I'm forgetting which French. There was some. French uh, luxury retailer or whatever that came out and said they're going to make an extra $180 million because mm -hmm. of the discrepancy between the dollar and the euro now. But 
yeah. most companies that we interact with that we know are to, to steal a phrase I just used royally fucked. Right. Well, that's a high end ret- retailer. You said, yes. Like, I don't know if they sell watches or something, you know, like some real expensive retailer. I'm going to well, get you the, the name right now. Well, th- those companies are going to do okay because the rich, the very richest people, you know, like rare art has been in a bull market recently too. So some of these high, high end things are going to be able to benefit and do that. But for the vast majority of companies, a strong dollar hurts everybody. It hurts the economy because it hurts the banks. So these banks in emerging markets or these banks in, say, even in Europe, the European banks, once they start getting stressed, which they are very stressed right now, credit is going to be tight, right? Credit is going to be tight. And so the, the economy cannot function. It cannot heal itself if the money is so tight. And that happens because the strong dollar is wrecking the banks. So a strong dollar, it might you might be able to find one or two companies, yes, that as an example, that their market was not hit for some niche market or something like that. But in general, it there are no winners in a strong dollar system. It was Burberry. Burberry said this month that the strong dollar will add 200 million to its revenue this year. They, so make, yes. they make coats, right? Like peak coats and stuff? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's something that my girlfriend makes me buy for her, I guess. Add it to the list. <laughs> All right. All right. So any, any other questions on that part of Walmart? What What are your expectations? You know, Walmart's now coming out and saying, we're going to make less money. So what do you do then in that position when you know you're going to be making less money? How are you cutting expenses? Well, first and foremost, you're firing people. Ding, ding, people ding. Off. Yeah. And what happens when unemployment starts to go up? to these numbers that the fed wants to change and move around. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the fed's going to be late. The feds, you know, the, these numbers are going to move a lot faster than the fed can react to, especially because I'm going to touch on this when I talk about the fed raising rates, but you know, they have a two month break after this. So tomorrow they come out with their thing, their policy decision, and then they have a two month break. They don't come back till September, late September. So, yeah, they, they will be behind the eight ball for sure once they come back. Another thing is that these, I don't believe the, the employment stats anyway in the first place. If you look at labor force participation, it is, you know, I don't know, is it 5 million people below where it was pre-pandemic? And 5 million people didn't die in the pandemic. They just aren't coming back to work. So the inflation or the unemployment rate, I don't really buy anyway in the first place. Ansel, do you also think, I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's an election year. November is obviously November 3rd is when the yeah. election is. So September is when they come back. If things are not good, we're expecting either a 75 basis point or potentially a full percentage point hike and things start collapsing even more. Do you think September is a good time to reverse to a Fed pivot and drop the rates, maybe not to zero, but cut it in half and start pumping QE, stimulus, whatever you want to call it? Do you think, I mean... That seems like what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like the, the politicians or the, at least the politicians in office now would love for that to be the economy to be going in the other direction, going into an election cycle, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And remember Powell met with Biden a couple months ago and there was probably some arm twisting in there in that meeting. I don't know, but geez, I, I believe that Powell is pretty resistant to this political pressure, to be honest with you, because I've been following some of the appointees to the Fed. And we've talked about it here on the show with Sarah Bloom Raskin. She was going to be vice chair and she's a huge progressive. 
she wants to use the Fed for climate change stuff. And so, you know, and that, that she got shot down by the Senate. You know, it seemed to be a coordinated effort to not get her in there. She ended up pulling out her her candidacy or whatever you call it. And then Lael Brainerd, who is also more progressive than Powell. Powell's somewhat conservative, I think. Lael Brainerd was up for Powell's job, but Powell got the nod anyway. So that they've, if you look at their kind of, I guess, personnel choices, they have been really stiff arming po politics to a large degree. And so I think Powell is fairly insulated. He also is pushing off CBDCs, right? So he has shown over the last couple of years that he is fairly resilient to political pressure. So I don't know. I really don't know what that meeting was like with Biden. He might have, Biden might have said, hey, I need you to figure out a way to keep gas prices low, cut inflation, but don't crash the economy. And Powell was, uh-huh. Yes. Yes, Mr. President. So I don't know. I don't know how much that goes into his thinking. Yeah, th thanks, Ansel, for that. I I'm good, Q, unless you got anything. No, let's keep it rolling. All right, hold on. My little boy here is needing my help for something. No, you're All right. good. All right, you're good, buddy. Okay, sorry about that. Okay, let's, let's get into the slides now. If we can go to slide number three. This is... One of the slides from a post that went out on Zero Hedge this morning by Lance Roberts. He is part of the Real Investment Advice team. They have a YouTube channel and, of course, a investment advisor ship somewhere. And we did interview Michael Leibowitz, which is one of his partners. We interviewed him here on FedWatch, but Lance Roberts hasn't returned my calls. So I want to get him on the show as soon as possible. But he had a piece on Zero Hedge, and this was one of the charts in there. And he talked about Yellen, how Yellen said, oh, I don't see recession coming. None of the indicators are there. We've cut our fiscal deficit by 1.5 trillion and we have low unemployment and XYZ. We're not in a recession. And so th this is Lance Roberts refutation of that, at least the fiscal deficit side where you can see, yeah, we have cut the fiscal deficit by 1.5 trillion, but that's because we in increased it by 2 trillion. And so we just cut it by uh, 1.5 this year. That's not really saying much. Also, I was recently on Stefan Lavera's podcast, and I think that episode just came out today, right before we went live. So you guys can check that out over on Stefan Lavera's feed. But my, my analogy in there about fiscal spending and why fiscal spending is not inflation. First off, they borrow it, right? It's all, always borrowed when, well, let's just stick with that. It's, it's borrowed money. So what they're doing is they're pulling future demand into the present. So if you think of a, like a container of water or a, a tank of water, you put your hand in and you pull some water forward, right? You're going to increase the water level in front of your hand. That's now, that's demand right now. But behind your hand, there's the, it's, the water level is actually lower than it was before. So there's a, a lull in demand after you fiscally spend. And the way that governments typically address this is they keep increasing the fiscal deficit year after year after year to stave off that inevitable crash in demand that's coming. This time, they haven't done it. And Janet Yellen is actually bragging that they haven't done it. She's bragging that they haven't kept the fiscal budget up, the fiscal deficit high enough to keep that crash in demand from, from formulating. And I'm not saying that I think she should have done it. They probably, I don't know, it's a, it's a tough spot to say what they should and shouldn't do because if they don't come in, 
you know, we'd have a financial crash that would take us back to Mad Max. And that's my true belief. If, if we let this thing collapse before Bitcoin's ready, of course, Bitcoin can come in and Bitcoin can take over and Bitcoin can fix these things. But before Bitcoin's ready, if they let it collapse, it will be a Mad Max type scenario. So it's kind of a tough place to be in. But they should know that they can't just cut fiscal spending off. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're preparing us for a crash. So if you go to the next slide, this is the next chart from, from Lance Roberts. And this is, it's kind of messy, but it's kind of pretty too. It's all of the spreads. So each line is either the 10 year, the 10 and one spread, the 10 and two spread, the 10 and five spread, or the five and three month spread. You know, each one is a different spread. I think he has 10 or 20 on this or 15, I think on this chart, but you can see that each, each time these, they, they kind of cascade and waterfall down to inversion. And then we have a recession. It's very, very clear. If you go to the next slide, what I did was I zoomed in. This is my own chart. I just took a few of those for a representation just to zoom in on this. But what I wanted to do was show the great financial crisis back in 2008. You can see that the, the yields started compressing, but they sloped down nicely, right? It wasn't like all of a sudden they crashed to zero. And then if you go to after that, the reflation, and they sloped down nicely till 2019 when we had the repo rumble, we had the Fed pivot, we had all those things that happened in 2019. And then of course, coronavirus. So that, but that's a nicely sloping downward curve. But right now, if you look at right now, it's straight down. All of these curves are inverting over the last week or month. It's like a brick wall. The economy is going to hit a brick wall. And that's what I think when you look at the fiscal spending, the fiscal spending chart, you look at this, these yield curve inversion chart here, that everything's hitting a wall. I think something is going to happen before September. So they're in this, this two month break. Well, now they have two months of something really bad could happen within the next eight weeks. And I'm not, I try not to be an alarmist. And I just wrote a piece about not being an alarmist and that there's so many people in macro that are saying, you know, like oil's going to $200 a barrel and the world is going to end and the S and P is going to crash to zero and, you know, or take 50% off at least. And there's all these alarmists out there. And I try not to be that, but I think that we're coming to the wall and the fed knows it. So we'll see what they do tomorrow. If you go to the next slide, this is a, a chart from Jeff Schneider this morning on Twitter. And the blue line is real GDP. And you can see the dotted line is if we would have maintained the pre-COVID growth rate. And you can see we never got back to trend. We never got back to trend. And now we're declining again. If you put on here the pre-global financial crisis, so if you go back before 2007 and you put that trend line on here, it would be way higher. I mean, it would be off the chart because we have just gone so far down below the pre GFC normal growth trend that, you know, it can't even be charted on here. Anyway, these, the, on the right side, the four little lines there, he's kind of extrapolating. If we, the top one is if we repeat a dot com type recession for GDP. And then the next one is the first half of the great financial crisis, the, 
dotted red one is the Volcker recession to 81 and 82. And then the bottom, the thick red line is second half of the great financial crisis. So he's saying if, if we are to repeat one of these type of events, this is what it would look like. Now, this is where I'm not going to be an alarmist because I really think that we could be close. We could be on the path of a dot-com type GDP pullback where we, we do see some stock market declines. We see a financial crisis, but it doesn't really rattle the market that much. And how would I describe this? Well, back in 2019, if you guys remember the repo rumble, it happened like I said, I think September 16th or something like that of 2019. It was just in a niche part of the financial system repos and it froze up and even on the run treasuries. That's the most pristine of the pristine of collateral could not find a bid. The, the, the financial system froze but nobody out in the normal market knew about it. It was just a very niche event that happened and that made the Fed pivot. They pivoted from QT to QE right away. There was no pause even. So I think that we could be looking at a situation like that. We're hitting a brick wall. There's gonna be some malfunction in deep within the, the credit market, the credit system. Most people, it's gonna be transparent to most people. They're not gonna see it. But the Fed is going to be scared because, you know, the system is hours away from breaking and going to Mad Max. And that, that's where they pivot. So, all right. I rest my case right here. What do you guys have? Uh, comments, questions, concerns? I guess I'd like to just hear what your expectations for next week are. Do you think things like this Walmart news will change the 75 basis point hike? which seems all but certain. I know that there was the inkling that we might see 100 after the inflation reads that we got two weeks ago, last week. I don't know. It all blends together at this point for me. But would love your your expectations there. Yeah, so the it's, actually, it's tomorrow, actually. The, so the policy will come out tomorrow, whether they hike 75. Right now, the if you go to the last slide there, Chris, is the current expectations, and this is via the CME FedWatch tool. And we named this show before they named this tool. So they, they took our name for this tool, by the way. So CME, come on, we need, we need some royalties on that. Anyways, you can see that the, the left-hand column there is 75 bips, at 75% chance of a 75 basis point hike. And then the right-hand column is a 25% chance of a 100 basis point hike. Now, I don't think they can do 100 because they're speeding towards the brick wall and they know it. The credit market knows it. The credit market is going to force them, force their hand to pivot eventually. And if they go less than 75, I think the market will sense blood in the water, right? Uh, they'll think that they now the Fed is going to pivot. The Fed is calm, closer to easing than before and their rhetoric won't have as much influence. So I think they have to, they're stuck. They have to do 75 tomorrow and pray that something doesn't break before september which i think it will so that's that's my thoughts so then let's let's go back to that slide number six and i this is now to both you and and chris chris i don't really care what you think i only care what ansel thinks about tomorrow i kid i kid when you are answering please tell us what your expectations are as well but say it's a 75 point hike where what effect does that have does the market act surprised 
or does it kind of do what it's been doing this whole time? And every time you meet these expectations, the market reacts positively at first only to then drop lower because then it, it rationalizes, oh shit, I have now doubled my interest rate again, or this will be the first time over the last three rate hikes that we actually aren't doubling the interest rate, but it's still very significant to have a 75 basis point rate hike. Chris, you want to take that one? I mean, I guess I've, we've always been saying Bitcoin's been a leading indicator. It's interesting. I, it's mm -hmm. obviously fallen. It was up to what, 24.1 or 23 mid. Now we're like, I didn't, I haven't even checked today. It's like 22 last time I checked last night or 21 around that range. I don't know if it's going to fall out and collapse underneath it, like based on the basis point hike. I think it's kind of like wait and see. I guess it gives me hope that Bitcoin's kind of remained at the price that it's currently at. Okay, Q is saying it's under 21K right now. So it has dropped a little bit, but it'll be interesting to see if it holds the the 20K like support line that Q talks about or if it falls below. So I really don't know. I think a lot of people have said a lot has rotated out of Bitcoin and crypto abroad. I, I hate saying that, but basically a lot has fallen out of that market where a lot of people that I listen to and respect say that the stock market's still overvalued by multiples. You know, if you look at that price to earnings or the mainly looking at like price to earnings and a, a bunch of other metrics there that they think the stock market, like maybe it doesn't roll out of crypto crypto or Bitcoin in general, it stays kind of flat or sustains, but it basically everything else starts to roll out, whether it's, you know, the bond market, as well as the stock markets have further percentage to fall. And, you know, really the, the Fed doesn't care about the crypto space or Bitcoin industry in general. They do care about the stock market, whether they say, oh, we don't like if it were to drop 25%, 30%, like within the next couple months, that would be what my think would be a cause for concern for like an emergency meeting or a reversal, even though they're not supposed to meet again till September that like either Janet Yellen or Jerome Powell is going to be on the mic being like, hey, like, you know, we, we've met and like based on the factors that we see, you know, we have to pivot back or, you know, we're going to, we're not going to raise or maybe a slight drop. I don't know what it'd be, but basically they would change course with that. Over to you, Ansel. Yeah, I think that's really good. I would say the bond market, you know, rates have peaked and they are, they're rolling over for sure. And what that means is that people are looking for safe and liquid assets. So they, they, that's telling the market that trouble is coming. Trouble is just around the corner. Right. And so that could affect stocks that definitely could affect stocks but i i don't i don't know i'm i'm not expecting a big sell-off in stocks because wh where else are people going to go you know the, um, they could go to bitcoin of course but not all of them will go to bitcoin right away at least and also the stock buybacks the you know every so often there's a freeze on stock buybacks so that you can't buy back your own stock and that just is lifting right now so these companies are going to start buying back their own stocks. And I think that's going to really put a floor under the market and, and go up. Plus, you know, stocks are forward looking and they know they can smell the pivot coming. They can smell it. And what's going to happen when the pivot comes, stocks are going to shoot up through the roof. So that's what I think most, most people are thinking that the Fed will pivot sometime by the end of the year. And stocks are sniffing that out right now. But interesting that you talked about the Bitcoin price. So if you go to slide number eight, that is the Bitcoin chart. It's a four-hour chart. And I think it's very interesting that the June hike happened almost at this exact same level on the chart. Almost to the, almost to the dollar. And since then, 
Bitcoin has had a very slight upward sloping angle. So it, it would be weird to, I think it's weird to think that maybe the Fed raising 75 bips would be bad for Bitcoin because since they raised in June, we're at the exact same level with a slightly better foundation with higher highs and higher lows. So what do you guys think about that chart? Okay, you want to comment on it? I was not going <laughs> to like my comments, but... Comment, man. Comment. I, I think it's very really interesting. You're seeing a bull flag kind of form, but then you also have to start to factor in other ideas. Like, while this is where the June hike is, where yeah. the levels were for, what was it? I guess technically it would have been the April hike at the beginning of April would have been when we were all in Miami hovering above the 30 Ks. I think these 75 point hikes are scaring off institutional investors, but it is absorbing retail. And I think certain things that we will continue to see trend higher in Bitcoin are things like the number of wallets with one Bitcoin, a minimum of one Bitcoin. The amount of Bitcoin on exchanges will continue to trend lower. And other things that I think will actually continue to trend lower are the hash rate and difficulty for some time because you're going to see not Bitcoin itself feel the pressure of more expensive debt, but we've already seen it in the miners and many miners with debt and on high leverage have gotten rocked. And they have a lot of them have built their entire business model on exactly that. We see consolidation in other sectors and industries a lot. I bring up Hollywood because that's a realm in which I'm familiar with and I come from. You've seen studios buy up other studios. Watch miners buy up other miners right now. That's something that I'm actually keeping an eye on. That to me could actually be this bear market's version of minor capitulation. When some big name miner, some miner that you are familiar with, announces that they've been acquired by one of the other big players in the space. Citibank. That, sorry? But they've been acquired by Citibank. Oh, God, help us. If that happens, we're so fucked. It's, but like, I'm thinking something to the tune of like, Hut 8 merging or buying, I don't fucking know, core scientific, not actual stuff that I know about. I'm purely talking out of my ass. But that to me is the equivalent of AT&T merging with, what was the? Bell South. Sure. I was thinking of the other one, Singular uh, Wireless. Warner Brothers. Verizon, Like our T-Mobile and Sprint. I'll make it easier for everyone. Like that type of consolidation where it's like you are literal competitors, but you are sort of vying for that fourth, fifth, sixth place in your industry and instead you want to combine to now take on the marathons and the riots. That would actually be sort of, in my opinion, a real... I, I want to comment on what Ansel said. I think in this th th this epoch, or at least this bull market, there was a lot of lending that was done off of the ASICs themselves. So, you know, you, you could obviously leverage up your Bitcoin, but a lot of people are like, oh, these ASICs are going up in value. I'll give you a loan against the ASICs. If you have a million dollars of ASICs, we'll give you whatever, $500,000, you can go acquire more ASICs. 
Well, people are finding out the third party risk. I know Bitcoiners point this out all the time, you know, not your keys, not your coins, not your ASICs, not your ASICs. You know what I mean? Like, so where a lot of the banks are like, hey, we're coming to collect those ASICs. So it's like, well, I'm in a hosting facility that I also don't own. It's by the electric company and the electric company says you're not allowed on here unless you have a warrant. So it's all like this contagion within contagion kind of thing. So I could see in the future, I think there's still going to be an ASIC lending market, but I think lenders are going to be a lot more leery, meaning that they are not going to be as easy to give up money without having the counterparty sign or in like to Ansel's point, imagine Citibank's like, okay, fine, you screw us over. We're taking over there. We're taking over the ASICs in the, the current contract that you have with the power producer. So now Citibank or JP Morgan or whatever becomes an ASIC miner through proxy of defaulting on their debt. But that's something that I think we'll see in, in the next next wave for sure, because a lot of them are still not able to get the miners. I know Marty Bent and Odell brought this up. They think a lot of people are just going to be selling them to cash. So if you want to get into ASIC mining, this is not financial advice, but they think there's still more prices to come because once they finally get the ASICs, they're like, I'll take the loss. I'll write it off in the balance sheet. I just want to sell it for cash. And that's going to further push the price down. He thinks there's going to be a small subset that says, screw it. We're already underwater on the loan. We might as well just mine for Bitcoin ourselves. But that'll be like a small, small percentage. He thinks a lot of people, cash is king in the strengthening dollar. They just want the dollars and they're just trying to clean up their balance sheets. But that's just kind of my two cents on it. Sorry to diverge from that. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Answer. No, that's that's interesting. So you're saying that they're they're going to sell the new ASICs that they receive or the Bitcoin that they've mined? I think the ASICs. So in order to cover the loans against the the ASICs that they gave out. But like perfect example, like an S19 just probably eight months ago at this point was about 14K. Right now, I, I looked beforehand, they're going for about $3,500. So that's about what, a 75% drop, 80% drop somewhere in that range of my maths, right? That like, you know, that's a lot of equity that they loaned out. You know, if it's 50% loan to value, they, they're underwater on that alone. Like they were hoping to recoup at 7K or at least six to 7K, you're three grand under that or at least. So yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. And talking about acquisitions, we, we talked about this back in like 2017, 2018. I haven't heard anybody talk about it recently that I was saying back then that for Bitcoin to really become mainstream, a lot of these companies are going to have to get acquired and Coinbase is having a lot of trouble. And I always thought Coinbase would be acquired. So now that they could be, it would have to be a hostile takeover, right? Of, of the stock, but they could be acquired in that way by somebody, depending. I think this is very interesting. This is a growing phase for Bit the Bitcoin market. People are learning a lot about the mining industry. I mean, Joe Carlosari, he, he does a lot of his legal work on the mining side. And I mean, a lot of lessons are being learned right now. This is just going to make Bitcoin stronger in the end. So that, that's all I have for my new stuff for this show, guys. Should we take Q&A from anybody that has anybody asked a question in the chat? Q, I don't know if you've been looking at the chat, if there's anything that's come through particularly. I have been, and truth be told, I asked the one question that I thought was worth our time in the middle of our conversation. <laughs> okay, well, I have um, one from my community. If you, Yeah, please. We should go there. Okay, so this is Mr. Pace from my Discord server, and he asks, many are saying they will continue hawkish until something breaks but it appears things are already breaking. What is your base case for the Fed action rest of the year? What is catalyst for them to pivot? And what will the pivot look like? So uh, we kind of answered that, right? I think that they're stuck right now on 75. 
they're have a two month break right now before September. And really historically, if you look back at like many of the big stock market crashes, if you look back at, I think it was Bear Stearns was at the end of Q3, you have 87, the crash of 87 was in October, I believe. And then you have 29 was October. So all of these seem to happen in at the end of Q3. So I would, I would put it that they are going to, there's going to be some sort of crisis by the end of Q3 that's going to make them pivot, at least pause their rate hikes. So that's what I think. There's another question here. He has a, uh, another question is how quickly does the ECB put their tail between their legs and about face one and done? Well, we've talked a lot about the ECB here on FedWatch. I think they, I mean, they're in trouble. I, I really don't know because they, they're so screwed up over there in Europe. They, they have to get some sort of narrative management on inflation, but their inflation is very different than the United States because they have this energy crisis, right? They, they are facing, it's like their, their energy costs are 10 times what they were last year. I mean, it is ridiculous. That's like you, you right now say to, for my air conditioning bill here in Florida, it's like $300 a month or something like that, or 250, 10 times that. I, I couldn't imagine what, what they're going through over there with this price increases for Europe. So Europe is in a whole different bag. I think what that tells me is that they're going to have to end these sanctions at some point, some point sooner than later. They're going to have to end these sanctions because now look, the, the turbines with the Nord Stream pipelines. So they, they took them two months to get this one turbine fixed. And Canada didn't want to ship it back to Siemens in Germany because they didn't have the right paperwork. And they, the Russian sanctions said they shouldn't trade with Russia. And, and, and Germany was like, no, get that freaking turbine back here now and get it installed and fixed, right? Finally, it got fixed. And now Russia says there's another turbine that's out. So, I mean, this is just going to keep happening. And they're, they're in big trouble. They, they need to end the sanctions sooner rather than later, or else, you know, we're looking at maybe a 1791 or whenever the French Revolution was. We're looking at something like that type of thing going on in Europe where they're going to kick out all of these globalist WEF types out of Europe. And I think that might be that might be happening before the ECB has to pivot. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I know the ECB, they've they've done one high cancel. I forget, right? Or they've they've done one or none yep. at all right now. They did one. one, one. Hike. Yep. And their their inflation rate right now is what 8.6, 9.1. And we've done a bunch more. So on top of energy prices are, are spiking and all this, and they can't really, you know, they can't continue to hike while the dollar is strengthening. So then their energy gets even more expensive. It's like stacking on stacking on stacking on top of each other. So yeah, they're in a really, really bad spot right now. Yeah. And these recessions kind of roll downhill, like I was talking about earlier. So the U.S. consumer is hurting. So now the Chinese producer is going to be hurting the exporter and they import hard, large, oh, they import large machinery from Germany and Russia. So now those people are going to be hurting. And I mean, it's just rolls downhill. And I think even though Europe is one of the dirtiest shirts in the world right now, the ECB, it's just going to get uglier for them going forward. I have one more question from my community. Should I go with it? Yeah. Okay. We'll see. Uh, I have, I think I have five minutes by the clock left on my time. Okay. So 
Patrick McCoy on Twitter, he asked me in a DM, curious your take on what Bitcoin did that, you know, the Peter McCormick podcast with Jeff Schneider, because Jeff Schneider was talking about deflation and he was talking about elasticity of money. I have responded to this in my own podcast over on Bitcoin and markets. I believe it was my most recent episode on that feed. So if you go to just search for Bitcoin and markets in your podcast app and you'll find it. My, my general thinking really quick on this is I agree with Jeff partly. I, I don't go all the way. I think he's a brilliant analyst, a brilliant understanding of the euro dollar system, but I don't think that he understands the the monetary arguments of this. So we the the world is at the end of a 75 year huge dollar credit bubble, and there's no getting out of it because it's a credit based system. So the problem is the form of the money. If the money had a backing, like say gold or Bitcoin then you could let these bad debts liquidate. But when there is no backing and the entire system is an intricate web of interconnecting liabilities and counterparty risk, if you let some, one person default, say you let Citibank default, everybody defaults because they owe something to everybody on the street. So th this is not capable, not, they're not capable of letting bad debts liquidate because of the form of the money. Eventually we have to go away from that. We have to back, back it with something like Bitcoin or gold. And until then, we're just going to have low growth and low inflation. So I kind of go with Jeff halfway, but not the whole way. And that's all I got, guys. Any other questions to wrap up the show? Where can everyone stay up to date with everything you're cooking, Ansel? All right. Well, I do a free Friday newsletter at BitcoinandMarkets.com. Please go sign up for that. It's called the Fundamentals Report. I go over, I do like a market rant up front, and then I do a price analysis, a mining and a mining news and stuff like that. Sometimes I get into macro and altcoins in there as well. I do my own podcast, Bitcoin and Markets, have my Telegram channel, Bitcoin and Markets, so anywhere, just search for Bitcoin and markets and you'll find me. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. Ansel, thank you as always. If you guys aren't subscribed to Bitcoin and markets, if you like FedWatch, you really should subscribe to the newsletter. It's pure signal. I absolutely love reading it on Friday. So thank you for all you do, Ansel. Thank you for joining us. Should we wrap? Should I just pull the plug? Just bye. Let's wrap it up. I want to remind everyone to get your tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam before ticket prices go up again. Use promo code BMLIVE and get 10% off. And of course, the censorship-resistant issue of the print magazine is available at Barnes & Nobles here in America and available to you at the Bitcoin Magazine store as well. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of that and anything else you see at the Bitcoin Magazine store. That's a wrap. What is up, audio listeners? Thank you for enjoying another episode of FedWatch. Down in the show notes, you will find all the appropriate links to our social media, the original version of this podcast, and community links. Also, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com, where I put out a free weekly newsletter every Friday. And there you can also help support the show by signing up to become a paid member. See you next time.